Welcome to Enscope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's your host, Mike Murray. Hi, and welcome to this week's In Scope, the healthcare security podcast. As always, I'm Mike Murray, and with me this week to talk about all kinds of fun legal topics is Suchi Pahi. I'm going to let Suchi introduce herself. For those who follow the sort of healthcare security and, and healthcare privacy space, you've probably already heard of her. But uh, Suchi, why don't you give us a bit of your background, just because I'm not going to do your bio nearly the justice that you will. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be here. And also, hello, all of y'all guys, gals, and non-binary pals who are listening. I'm looking forward to talking about healthcare security and legal stuff with y'all. Briefly, I'm a longtime privacy and cybersecurity lawyer, and I most recently worked for a post, I'm going to say acquisition startup that was a healthcare tech company. And so I've been around the healthcare tech startup space, as well as uh, general institutional healthcare. And now I'm working in a cloud computing company doing some really fun, purely technical things that aren't related to healthcare. It's pretty exciting. And actually, that's one of the things that, that I'm most excited to talk to you about. If you've been following the VC space, the last couple of years have seen more investment in health tech companies, especially throughout 2020 and the pandemic and coming into 2021. And so there's a million startup founders out there who are running around trying to learn how to sell to healthcare, trying to learn the challenges of healthcare, and especially the intricacies of how of dealing with patient data and, and protected health information. And I would just love to hear you riff on it. If you're a First, you're a startup founder who's used to building cloud computing things, and you just got funded to build a, a healthcare startup. What would you want to tell that person? I guess I would want that person to try and understand. So go talk to someone who knows the healthcare industry and understand whether they want to be a part of it or whether they want to sit outside of it. And if they want to sit outside of it, they can still collect health, what I'm going to call, what we generally would call health information, right? Like the steps I'm walking, what my heart rate looks like, what my blood pressure is based on, you know, my nifty apparatus that I'm wearing around my wrist. And there's some regulations around that, but that doesn't necessarily put that particular startup or company or founder within the health tech startup space the way you'd understand it when it's regulated under HIPAA. And I think that's what I'd want that person to really look into before they dove into whatever they were doing for the company. So it's like, what's your purpose? And does working with hospitals and insurance companies and other what we call covered entities under HIPAA actually fulfill that purpose for you? Or is there some other route you can take where, unfortunately, you might be subject to like a hodgepodge of privacy rules in the US plus whatever's going on in Europe and Asia, or you can be under HIPAA and that has its own requirements when it comes to like contracting and several other things. So suppose I decided to build a cloud packs, or I decided to build some new nifty medical device that delivers care in some way through a cloud backend. I mean, you see hundreds of them popping up all the time. They don't get to skirt the rules, right? They're full on, at the very least, business associates, but probably even more than that in some cases. What do you do with that founder? I think that founder needs to have a really solid security and legal team because when we get to this point, you're really 
carving different areas out from or within HIPAA. So are you actually processing this health information? Is there a way you can identify the people whose information is being processed? Like all of that stuff is quite nuanced. And so it might be that, yeah, you end up being a business associate, but you won't have as much potentially insight as you need to fulfill some of like the incident reporting requirements. This is the thing that I think is so interesting is so many people who come into this space that start as startup founders. I mean, the kind of traditional startup founder thinking, most of them, the first thing you do is not hire an army of lawyers. My previous company that I started many, many years ago was a, an ethical hacking training platform. We had lawyers who kind of helped us set up the business, but we never thought about these sorts of things. And, and starting Scope, I have a very different team of lawyers because of all of these challenges. And I think, I think everyone wants to talk about, I mean, everybody, HIPAA is the first thing on their mind. And I think most people are surprised when they get to HIPAA because unlike PCI or FedRAMP or something like that, there's not a checklist, right? And maybe you can educate the audience on that because I think it'll be a surprise to a lot of people when they start to read HIPAA and they're like, okay, where does it say two-factor authentication? That's probably the crux of the problem that I've encountered when I'm working with folks who aren't native to the healthcare space. It's, you're right, HIPAA is not a checklist and, and HIPAA compliance doesn't mean that you can just read the regs and and check off a bunch of boxes and say, yeah, I'm HIPAA compliant and go from there. Instead, HIPAA was set up as a floor or a baseline. And from there, you're supposed to scale up your security and privacy practices based on the sensitivity of the data or the volume of data or what your potential threats look like from a security perspective, just for the type of company that you are. Where are you based? What other stuff are you handling? How fast are you scaling? That can go from a company that barely has to do anything, like meet the baseline, or it can be a company that really has to have a robust like insider threat program. And I think the reason that it gets complicated very quickly is because you have to have people who are able to think strategically leading your security team and similarly for your privacy team to make sure that you're tackling the stuff that would be of, I think, the greatest sensitivity within your organization, which is true, I think, across the board for security teams, whether you're in healthcare or not inside of healthcare. But once you throw in the healthcare stuff, you have the added like penalties that you're going to get under HIPAA. But I think far too often, and especially, I know you've worked at this startup. I've definitely worked at this startup where the the CEO says, I just want to check this box so I can go sell now, please. Let's get me there as quickly as possible. I Don't make me think about it. Just, just go do it. How do you even think about approaching that? Like you said, it's a very strategic thought process that often requires real understanding of the business and the regulations. Do you just go get a consultant and so start checking boxes? I think, which brings me to high trust. I think with high trust, I would go hire a consultant and get someone to work on those checkboxes because I don't do high trust. It's a security compliance measure or framework that has very specific requirements and I, I don't know anything about it. But if it was talking to the C-suite about actually having HIPAA compliance and being able to pull in healthcare entities, then I might say, hey, default to the most restrictive position. Go with a BAA, bind yourself by all the rules and make sure we follow them and build it in from the get-go and then we can revisit this position later. That's probably the safest way to go. It's not exactly the easiest way to go. But otherwise, I think typically 
my approach when dealing with trying to implement stuff that's like regulation based is really framing up the risk of what happens if we don't do it and how many deals will fall through if we're actually working with like savvy healthcare people. And I've been on both sides of that conversation where it's, you know, someone will say, Hey, I can sign this business associate agreement with you guys. No problem. And I'll go talk to the lawyer a little bit more on the other side. Lawyer will say, well, I know this person said this to your technical person, but we actually do X, Y, Z. So we can sign the paperwork, but we wouldn't be meaningfully complying. And I'm like, well, now I know that we're both infected with the knowledge. So let's not go this route then because it's illegal. (laughs) (laughs) I think you really have to be able to frame up those risks and understand also what your C-suites risk profile is as well. By the way, that's one of the things that you talked about the first road and and I'm living that first road because of my background in a lot of this stuff. We built we built our platform on the most restrictive idea. There there's literally no way we can commingle data. And it like physically separate instances of things where there's it would be impossible for us to accidentally commingle data. And we did it that way so that I could sign those BAAs and we could have those conversations. But I mean, frankly, the fact that we're talking about commingling data like everyone else understands it, maybe you should explain why that's actually an issue and, and what I'm even talking about. Because most people think, oh, I'm just going to stick up a MySQL database and it'll be multi-tenant. We'll have a different customer ID in the same table, right? I think that's one of the biggest things that startup founders and and people who are coming into healthcare from the outside really don't get. So protected health information is the key piece of this issue and and the definition of that. And the, the definition is pretty broad, right? It's I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's basically health information or health-related information of a person. And it's from in a covered entity or a business associate context. So me tweeting that, I have a broken ankle is not covered under HIPAA, but my physician tweeting perhaps the date and time I was there and a photo of me along with my condition is definitely PHI. And so I think what a lot of people struggle with is trying to actually define what counts as PHI and then the understanding that it's not just the diagnosis code or it's not just the name of the physician, it's anything attendant in that particular encounter or relationship. and. You can't just mix data that's protected by one particular set of standards with PHI, because then you need to move that all to the PHI protection bar. Might as well just call it all PHI and protect it the same way if that's the highest level of protection you offer. In the end, if you treat everything as PHI, I think you have a lot less flexibility to do like data analytics and things like that, especially if you want to do analytics to like make your product better, but not necessarily serve the same folks from whom you got the original PHI. And so one of the things that I would tell startup folks is to make sure that you're appropriately carving out your definitions. So you save certain types of data for your internal analytics to be able to improve your products or optimize your services in a way that doesn't affect PHI or isn't a part of PHI. And that that gets especially relevant when you're talking about machine learning, right? Because what we ultimately want to do in most cases, you know, if you're building, I use the example of building a cloud, a cloud packs, right? A cloud analytic engine for medical images earlier. 
if you're building something like that, you want to be able to take the data from every scan across all of your customers and train a machine learning algorithm on that. Well, suddenly putting all of those things in the same database, depending on the BAAs that you've signed and depending on your, the agreements you have with each with each health system, and like you said, how the agreements are and your definitions are set up, that can be a very fraught exercise. I'm familiar with ML and I say familiar, but not an expert. And here's why. I would assume that if you're training models across a large data set, that there's a potential for accidentally revealing data if you're using them across customers. And that is something that I find terrifying just on a regular data level, not PHI or other special categories of data. Like if I was a customer dealing with that particular scenario, I would definitely build into my contract that You could train models using my data set, but those models would only be used for whatever services you're offering to me. And that's where it gets tricky, right? And and you and I actually had conversations about some of the stuff that we're doing with machine learning. So this is my example earlier is is a very personal one to me and the folks at Scope. And and we I mentioned when Suchi said something about having to have a smart legal team. Like we have lawyers who are just experts in how to do that. Right. And how to make sure that our BAAs and, our, and the things we sign with our customers align with our practices and that our practices for de-identifying certain data. I like to use the example when I'm talking to customers. If we're looking at a, an EHR audit trail and trying to find malicious behavior in that, the patient's name doesn't matter to us. So we throw that out. Right. We don't ever need the patient's name to, do, to identify bad behavior. We need an identifier. Right. And so certain times we'll hash that data. And so we can say this record is the same as this record, but that we don't know whose data it is. Sometimes we do need the data. If we're looking for malicious behavior from an IP address and an IP address is one of the 18 factors of of PHI in the sort of traditional definition. If we're looking for malicious behavior from IP addresses, we can't hash the IP address so we don't know what computer the bad guy came from. And so these challenges are so difficult. And literally, like your whole background is about dealing with stuff like this. And I think most people don't think about how difficult some of these things are. I wanted to switch directions because you and I had an interesting conversation earlier about compliance, right? And this whole conversation has largely turned on compliance. And and you said something so interesting before we started recording about compliance being different in the security industry than everywhere else. I wanted to go down that road a little bit. So compliance is a legal department. And within that legal department, or maybe it's separately from legal, depends on how large your company is. You have AML, which is anti-money laundering. You have FCPA, which is the Foreign Practices Act, which has like anti-bribery and things like that. And these are regulations. I think there's also forced labor is another one and export import. So all of these things are within the scope of legal compliance. So when I think of compliance now, after speaking with a colleague who's in legal compliance, I'm not thinking about high trust checklists or PCI. What I'm thinking about is what policies and controls do we have in place and have we socialized across the company to make sure that we don't fall afoul of of something like the anti-bribery regs. And, And that lawyer who's working on this type of compliance is sitting there and looking at case law where they've actually said, okay, this particular term in the regulation is really important and it means XYZ. And so then they go and take that case law and translate it back to we need to make sure we're not doing ABC at our company because that leads to XYZ in this particular standard under the regs. 
And so that's what compliance is from a legal side. And it's a completely different ball of wax than, hey, we need to answer these uh, RFP questions from a customer about whether we have a data retention policy like that. That actually has nothing to do with the legal compliance side of it. Well, I say nothing to do, but it has something to do with it. But it's a minor part of that legal compliance practice. Whereas if you have a high trust compliance effort that's going on or high trust certification effort that's going on at your company, then you're going to need at least two people like full headcount, full time working on that particular endeavor because they're going to have to corral folks into answering questions and get the right paperwork and do repeated interviews and stuff like that. But it's such a different, two things stand out to me as so different there. The first one being that there's actually penalties. If I don't have high trust, maybe I can't close a deal, but I'm, as the CEO, I'm not going to jail. Right. And with the other legal compliance, you might be going to jail. And it's a good chance that it won't be just because of regulators in the US. It's a good chance that you're looking at international regulatory efforts to try to get you into compliance. So it gets pretty fascinating. And there is not a lot of case law, but that means that the regulators have a lot of freedom to enforce the regulations against you however they'd like to. The other thing is, it, it sounds like you keep saying the word law, whereas what we talk about in compliance and security is, I don't want to deride it, but basically checklists of, it's a task list. And actually something that came to mind as you were talking and I think it's so interesting. We talked a little bit of, a minute ago about how confusing HIPAA is for security people. And I think if you look at sort of the history of a lot of our security compliance things, HIPAA was one of the first. And HIPAA seems to me, in the way you describe it, to be much more like legal compliance in that you have to think strategically, you have to interpret the regulation, you have to do all of this stuff. Whereas what we think of compliance traditionally in security is PCI and FedRAMP and things where it really is checking boxes off a task list. And I wonder if that's why this is me just throwing ideas off the top of my head, but I wonder if that's why HIPAA is so hard for people. I think it is. We onboarded at my prior company a lot of folks on the end side and the security side who weren't from healthcare companies. And, and they typically had a little bit of a longer learning curve because what they were looking for was like a set list of what exactly is PHI and what can I do or not do with it, like a very specific prescriptive set of things. And it didn't exist. Your attorney or actually whomever you have internally assigned to do this has to go look at HIPAA and its requirements and then take your business model and translate it over and then say, okay, we can do one, two, three things. And this is what counts as PHI and it's protected. And that's a endeavor that most companies don't have to do because they're dealing with stuff that's really much more clearly laid out in any other regulation. And previously, if you were looking at cybersecurity incident response work, you'd pull up any state's law and then there would be one very specific section that would say, okay, when we say personal information, we mean social security number, and first name, last name, or first initial last name. Very, very specific. And that isn't what you get in HIPAA. And you briefly talked about de-identification. And one of the things that I find fascinating is de-identification, you know, HIPAA again sets that really, I'm going to say low, low bar for de-identification with the removal of those 18 identifiers. But as tech continues to progress and as our capabilities continue to progress, it is something really de-identified when you've gotten rid of those 18 identifiers. Most folks, I think, would look at a data set and say, no, 
And at that point, it's what are you going to do? I have to tell you a story. So I, I will never forget my education in this. It was when I was at GE many, many, many years ago now. And I was sitting down with one of our privacy people. And I'm, I'm going to screw up what the what the specific statistic was. And the person across the table walked me through how if they had a gender, a zip code, and a date of a particular procedure, they could identify that patient to 99.999% of the time to this to a specific human being. And I was just like, okay. So it's not just the factors. Like you say, it's actually the way they can be related together and statistical identification. It's not just like, I looked at a, a line in an Excel spreadsheet. Can I figure out who it is? It's all of this really complicated thought that has to go into it. And especially like you said, with machine learning and AI technologies, some of that stuff gets really intensely interesting and difficult all of a sudden. And I don't think most people, as a security person, I always say that as a security person, when I got to GE, I said a lot of really dumb things that people kept correcting me on that made sense to most security people, but that healthcare people are like, yeah, you don't get it. I think a lot of people in our industry, I think a lot of people in the security industry as a whole don't really understand some of these challenges at that level. I think that's spot on. And you can actually say that about the legal industry as well, because specifically in the privacy area, you know, there's a, a thought that, hey, you're only under one reg. And so it, it's a pretty easy reg. You don't have to deal with all these other regulations. So it must be really easy being a health privacy lawyer. And, and that's actually not how that works. And really, one of the things I'd like to key in on is you said sophisticated and if we're looking at the best, most ethical way of practicing privacy and health and cybersecurity and health, then we would be aware of those statistics and we would take like the extra steps to make sure that we're in the compliance of the spirit of whatever the regulation is. And based on all of my experiences back when I was at a law firm, I had several clients that I worked with and I've seen what the industry actually looks like. And so there's a little bit of catch up going on. So we have the rest of the industry, these huge institutions and folks who don't have really great cybersecurity services they can rely on, or specifically they'll rely on like managed IT or something like that for security. And then you have your extremely sophisticated entities and we're all working off of this one regulation. And it's going to be interesting to see in the next I think 10, 20 years, how these huge institutions and other companies using managed IT are going to be able to like scale up their security practices or privacy practices to really keep meeting the spirit of the, the regs and the way that it's supposed to be versus just stripping those 18 identifiers. Because that's like the novice way of doing it. And if you can strip the 18 identifiers and get de-identified, that's great. But I have strong suspicions that that's not sufficient even now. I completely agree with my limited experience of those things. I think a lot of these regulations were written at a time that didn't anticipate some of the algorithmic tools and analytics that we have. Suchi, thank you so much. So I always end with this question. Where can people find more of you? People want to read your thoughts, hear what you have to say. Where do they find you? Right now it's on Twitter. <laughs> I've been pretty quiet lately, but I'm expecting a paper out soon about privacy and extended reality. So um, try to catch me off Twitter then and Happy to chat anytime. It is at Suchi Pahi. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again. This has been incredible and uh, very enlightening for everybody. And thanks for coming on. I hope we uh, get to do this again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.